every week, I mean, that's a nice church beat. Thank you, Dylan and Nate, for doing that. I'm always excited when I get to get a little beat going when we step up. But we're in a brand new series. Obviously, you can see the graphic, and you've heard about it a couple times. I mean, you saw it on social media, but it's going to be five weeks long, and it's called Toxic Theology. And to start tonight, I want to explain a little bit of what we're going to do in the next five weeks. That this sermon title gives you a little sneak peek, but I hope after the next five minutes, you'll know a little bit more of the journey we're about to go on. And so the first word I want to explain to you is toxic. And we don't really need a lot of time here, right? We get toxic. You got toxic people in your life, anybody? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But we got toxic people in our life. You're like, it's the person, maybe you're forced to be around them, coworker or classmate, but they just grind your gears. They, 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 they deteriorate their quality of your life. Like, I don't know what it is, but there's also toxic places. We get that. Like some of you are like school, work, family, friends. I got all the toxic places, but we, we get toxic. It's just places, people that are harmful for us. It's the same here. But we also need to understand a little bit about theology for this series. And theology can be a confusing, daunting, scary word for some people. So I'm going to toss you a working definition, okay? Theology is a word that is made from two Greek words. The first of the Greek words is the Greek word theo. Theo means God. It's where we get that theo in theology. The second Greek word is the Greek word logos. And it actually translates in English to ology. So when you combine the two Greek words to make the word theology, it's simply in our first definition for you, is theology is words about God. It's that simple. That when we're talking about God, it is theology. It, 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 it's theologos, words about God. So everything you say, everything we talk about is theology about God. It's our desire to know him, to understand him, to seek him. Yet at some point in the conversation, it gets a little convoluted because you're going to notice over the next five weeks, not every single thing we talk about is about God. There's aspects you and I play in the conversation of theology. And the only reason that is, is because you and I live in relationship with God. Did anybody take biology in like high school or college? Yeah, probably most people. Some people were like, yeah, 101. Some people were like flexing like 151, you know, like I'm one of the smart ones. Like half of you don't get the joke because you were in 101. Like... But in biology, it's the study of life. Maybe you've heard that, you've known that. But somewhere along the way in biology of class, you might have found yourself talking about something like a rock, something that wasn't alive. And you can be confusing because if biology is the study of life, what are we doing talking about rocks? But at some point, a rock might find itself in the conversation of biology simply because it lives in relationship to things that are alive. You're talking about the frog and the ecosystem of the frog that is alive and rocks are a part of the ecosystem. Right, something as simple as that can be translated into our definition of theology to expand this working defi definition to teach us that theology is the study of God and his relationship to creation. That we are a part of this conversation about theology. Though we don't inherently fit, we are not God, pray, <laughs> praise God that we are not God, we are still part of the theology conversation. That over the next five weeks, we will talk a little bit about us. It's because we're a part of relationship with God. But not everything you talk about God, not all the ways we live in relationship with God are good. Right? People say things all the time that are false about God, that aren't true, that, that lead us astray from God, that lead us astray in our relationship with God. And that's where this toxic part comes in. That not everything that's said about God, even if it's said with true, pure motives, is actually healthy for us. 
Over the next five weeks, we're going to cover five different common statements. Some people might call them cliches, but check out if you've ever said or heard one of these. The first one tonight we'll talk about is follow your heart. The next one we'll talk about next week will be God won't give you more than you can handle. Week three, we're going to talk about have fun in your 20s. Week four, Christianity is an easy life. And finally, week five, everything happens for a reason. All statements that sound great, but are actually more harmful than they are helpful. And some people, I haven't even started the message. Like this is all intro and some people are already offended because I just took a shot at your go-to slogan. (laughs) Every time someone comes to you for advice, you're like, hey, just follow your heart. And you're like, I I thought that was great. Like you you might've had pure pure motives, but we're going to talk about it. Or someone came to you and you were like, hey, I know it's a tough season, but God won't give you more than you can handle. And you're trying to encourage, but it might actually be toxic. It might be theology that is untrue and unhelpful. So all of these elements, they're going to build on each other as we talk and learn about what is theology. And we'll start the series by talking about follow your heart and how it's toxic theology. Has anyone ever heard of the guy Woody Allen? Yeah? You guys heard that name before? Yeah, I'd heard it, but I didn't really know why. So I did a little research on him this last week. And Woody Allen is an actor, director, and comedian whose career spans six plus decades. He has been in the game for a long time. And so a couple of the movies that he's famous for is this first one is Annie Hall. And Annie Hall was made in 1977. And I am old, but I'm not that old. And so I haven't seen Annie Hall, but I've heard it's amazing. If you want to watch it, it's his famous, most famous movie. And then Ants, not Bugs Life, Ants. Has no ants, nobody, maybe. And then finally, Midnight in Paris, Owen Wilson and Rachel McAdams? I don't know, but all three huge blockbuster movies that Woody Allen played parts in, whether acting or directing. But his ascent to fame, his stardom, wasn't always all this glamorous. Because in 1992, Woody Allen was making headlines again, but not for a movie that he was starring in. Rather, people were covering his life because a 12-year relationship that he had been in had ended. And, And relationships end all the time, so that wasn't really big news, but it was the reason why the relationship ended that actually got so interesting. Because after 12 years, Woody Allen's girlfriend broke up with him because she found him having a sexual affair with her daughter. Oh, you think it's bad, you just wait. At the time, Woody Allen was 56, and the daughter was 21. So someone 25 years younger than him, who was the daughter of his long-term girlfriend, he got into a sexual relationship, and it made the headlines. And the reason I tell you that today is because in 2001, Woody Allen did an interview with Time Magazine about his relationship They were asking him questions and trying to figure out what his motive was. And if it's just the different things. And when they asked him why he decided to sleep with someone 25 years younger than him, he said, the heart wants what it wants. He wanted to commit an affair with someone who was half of his age, who was related to the person he was previously sleeping with. And he justified it. And he said, well, the heart wants what it wants. And we sit here and we think, oh, Oh, that is so cringy and nasty and gross. And it is though, but is it that crazy? Right? Is it, is it that shocking? Because we scoff at Woody Allen, but the idea that he's using is almost universally accepted in our culture. 
if I were to quickly reframe what he has said, is Woody Allen was simply following his heart. He wanted to sleep with this person who wasn't his significant other, and so he did. And we're shocked and scoff. And, and, but we do this all the time. Most of us at some point in your life have gotten the advice, follow your heart. When choosing a college, maybe you got the advice, follow your heart. I remember when I did my first tour of SDSU and someone walking alongside me, they're like, well, what do you feel? I don't know, it's cold? <laughs> right, like it's big, it's, I, I didn't know what to feel. But feelings were a part, if not driving that conversation. Oftentimes when we're trying to figure out significant other situations, like who we're gonna date, it's like, okay, well, well what do you feel? Follow your heart. Jobs, careers, cities, homes, decisions, purchases, over and over and over again, we get this advice, follow your heart. Saying it slightly differently, it might sound like this, follow your feelings. What feels right? Just do that. That's what Woody did. And it's shocking there, but we do it all the time. And I want to dig into why that might be toxic theology. Because the practice of following your heart can harm your life. And I want to show you why from the word of God. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Jeremiah 17. Otherwise, they'll put it on the screen behind me. And as you flip there, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you tonight for your spirit that will lead us through the text. I pray that you would speak to each, one, each and every one of us in the unique way that we need. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, and I'm reading from the ESV version, which is slightly different than what I typically do. It says here, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Just one verse from Jeremiah 17 to get us started tonight. But in this one verse, there are so many things for us to unpack. Because the first thing we're looking at is what is Jeremiah talking about when he says the heart? Because he says the heart is desperately sick. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know, like I'm pretty active and I ate my Cheerios this morning and Jeremiah hasn't talked to my doctor, so my cholesterol is fine. And you're starting to defend yourself and justify that your heart is fine. But what Jeremiah is actually talking about here is he's not talking about the organ in your body. Jeremiah isn't describing the physical thing inside of you that pumps blood. That's not what Jeremiah talks about when he says the word heart. Rather, it's the Hebrew word lave that is used here in Jeremiah and throughout the Old Testament. And the word lave does not describe our physical organ in our heart, but rather it describes the inner depths of a person. The Hebrew word for heart throughout the Old Testament is not talking about simply a physical organ. It is talking about our innermost being, who we are in our mind, who we are in our emotions, who we are in our will and our desires, who we are at the core is what Jeremiah is talking about here. And he's saying, not that your blood pressure is low, but that your heart is all kinds of broken. Our mind, our desires, our emotions are broken. And I'm gonna put a couple graphics up here throughout the night and they'll put this first one up for me. But this is a, a depiction and a, a view of what your heart looks like when it's broken. It's black, it's corroded, it's desperately sick, it's evil, it's deceitful, it's, it's, it's not what it's supposed to be, right? Even though that's not anatomical, remember we're not talking about the physical thing, it's not supposed to look like that. And Jeremiah tells us our mind, our desires, and our emotions, they're broken. Actually, the first thing he says is they are deceitful. 
Has anyone ever spent time with like little kids? I'm not talking like, if they're under nine months, this is a hot take, so prepare yourselves. I think they pretty much just kind of look like aliens and they don't really do anything. So (laughs) they're just laying there and surviving. So it's like, I'm talking like toddlers. Like once they get to like a certain age that they can kind of move around. And if you've spent any time with toddlers, two, three, four, whatever it is, you know one thing, kids lie all of the time. It's like, did you wash your hands? Yes. Let me smell them. It's like, what? Why are we smelling? Like if they didn't wash your hands, that's actually a joke on you. Like, and it's like, did you brush your teeth? No. Did you bite your sister? No. Yes, you did. I can see the teeth mark. Like, right? Like kids lie all the time. And as I was preparing this, I found this meme. So check this one out. Maybe. There. Give you a second. <laughs> if you don't get it, the egg is supposed to be a turd. <laughs> and we sit there and we think, kids lie. Why, why is this funny? It's because it's true. But why do kids lie? It's like everybody in the room can smell you got a dookie in your pants, right? Like, why, why do they lie? But it shows that from the youngest of ages, there's something inside of us that's broken. That no parent taught them to lie. No sibling was coaching them in lying from the deepest, most inner parts of who we are. There is this deceitfulness that rings out from the heart. Kids lie, we lie, and there's this brokenness in us that Jeremiah calls the heart. And he doesn't just say it's deceitful, he also tells us it's desperately sick. The NIV translation says it's beyond cure. The NLT tells us it's desperately wicked. The message tells us it's hopelessly dark. I'm going to sum them all up and tell you your heart's jacked up. What's inside of us in the deepest core of who we are is broken. Through, through Jeremiah, through the rest of the narrative of the Bible, you will see it over and over and over again. And Jeremiah sits back and he laments. And he says, who can understand it? He grieves the brokenness of humanity. That at the core of who we are, our lave, our heart, is broken, it's sick, it's deceitful. And that's where we have to start. But praise God, it's not where we have to stay. Thankfully, there is a cure. Despite the reality of our sick and deceitful heart, there is hope that we can experience And that hope is Jesus. It's the song we sing. It's the name we proclaim. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one and only holy and anointed one. Jesus is the cure for our desperately sick hearts. But Jesus hasn't come just to give your heart a little tweak or fix. Jesus has come to give you a new heart. Completely brand new. And this isn't some like Again, physical operation where you're going to get a heart transplant. That, that would be weird. If a church starts preaching that, you should leave. <laughs> what we're talking about here is a spiritual reality that we experience by faith. That you might never see it, but you will experience the heart transformation Jesus is offering you. Are you okay with the theological term? Yeah, I'm going I'm to say okay. The word is regeneration. And what we're describing here in the text is the process of regeneration where Jesus gives us a new heart. Before we experience Jesus, before we put our faith in Jesus, we have what they call a degenerate heart. Anybody know the word degenerate? Right? Negative connotations. That's what Jeremiah is describing your heart condition as. 
And in order for you to experience what Jesus has for you, you have to go through the process of regeneration where Jesus gives you a new heart. That without him, your heart is wicked, deceitful. It's the black heart that we had on the screen. But with Jesus, you have new life, new beginning, or how the Bible describes it, a new birth. He has not just fixed your heart, he has replaced your heart with something brand new. God speaks about it through the prophet Ezekiel in uh, chapter 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The prophet is is preaching what Jeremiah started the conversation in. That hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years ago, Jeremiah was talking about this curse, this, this heart, this brokenness inside of us. Ezekiel, he continued the conversation and he pointed us to the hope. But only Jesus has the answer for us. And that's why Paul picks it up in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, verse 17. And he tells us, therefore, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Brand new. The old, it's gone. The new, it's here. We're not talking just about a little tweak here. We're talking about brand new life in Jesus. With Jesus, you get a clean new heart. They've got another heart that they're going to put up here. One that we hope and pray we can experience in Jesus. One that looks healthy and clean again. One that gets us away from the black, toxic, sick, deceitful heart. And one that takes us back to what we were meant to experience. Let me break this down again for you one more time. Apart from Jesus, your heart is dead, lost, broken, sick, and dark. We beat that dead, right? Like we, We get that. So following that heart is a bad bet. Let me paint you this picture. Anybody use like Google Maps and navigation ways if you're like super out there? Yeah, we, we all do. I mean, in Brookings, it's pretty easy. But anytime you go to a new place, you don't pull out like MapQuest anymore. You're going to use your navigation system. But imagine for a second that all of those disappear from the face of the earth. And the only navigation system you have for the rest of your life is something I created for you. Ha. Huh. <laughs> like... Right, ask Dylan, I have zero tech bones in my body. You are in for a whole lot of trouble if I made your app. But in this app, you have to use it. There's nothing else out there. But because I made it, it's got a lot of quirks. It's got a lot of like blemishes, a lot of like flaws and faults. And so it consistently tells you to go left when it should go right. It's like the office, right? Like turn here. Like it tells you to go north when you should go south. Like it often forgets where you're going. Along the way, it'll tell you fast facts that actually distract you from your driving. It's like 300 feet away, you're going to meet an elephant. It's like, wait, what? Like, this app that isn't helpful, but rather it's hurting your journey. And it consistently lies to you. And it's broken at its core. Do you follow that? Do you follow an app that is consistently going to take you to places you didn't want to go? And along the way, it's going to cause you frustration and anxiety and anger and bitterness and hurt and pain. Would you follow that? That's simple. But yet many of us will still follow our sick and deceitful hearts. Without a new heart, you absolutely should not follow your sick heart. We've got that, right? Let's speak about a little bit more hope. With Jesus, you get a new heart, brand new, cleansed, clean, perfect, exactly like it was meant to be. Except the hard part of that is Jesus has offered you a clean heart, but we still have to live in a dirty world. 
We still have to live in a place where there's temptation at every single corner, where there's strongholds and suffering and, and sin all over this world. Like the quote I keep coming back to this week is, pornography is the wallpaper of our culture. There is nowhere you can go from social media to to even school classrooms to every single place you go. There is this wallpaper of our society that is sin. So with a clean heart, you have to go back out and live your life. And when that happens, it's our job to keep our heart clean. I'm reminded of when I was a college student and I lived with four roommates it was, uh, we were only supposed to have three, so maybe this was part of the issue, but there were five of us in this place, and I, every three to four weeks, I would do a deep clean because my roommates were filthy animals, like, and so I would do all the dishes, like, I'm talking, like, an hour of dishes, and then I would scrub the counters, and I would sweep the floor. I usually wouldn't mop because, like, you can't really tell if someone mops. That's my opinion, but I wouldn't do that, but I would, I would wipe everything down, and I'd throw out like 14 loaves of moldy bread, and I was like, how is this even possible? We had this container. It sat on our, our island right in the middle, and people just threw their bread in it, and I kid you not, most of the things on the bottom were growing hair. It was disgusting, so I would do this, and I would leave, right? I'd go to class, and you're like, oh, okay, a couple hours. I'd just sit there. I'd learn about economics or communication. It was pretty chill, but I'd come back Two hours later, two, just two hours, like 120 minutes in the place. I'm still fired up. The place was disgusting. It's like one of the roommates made a Jack's pizza and decided to just cut the pizza on the floor. It's like crumbs are everywhere. Someone made mac and cheese and the magic dust is everywhere. Like it's just disgusting. There's somehow another loaf of moldy bread on the counter. Like what has happened in the last two hours, right? The frustration of that, I've invested in this. I had it clean. It was ready. It was prepared. I spent time on it. But yet people were living in that place and they made it dirty again. And that's the reality some of us experience with our hearts. Jesus has made your heart clean, but sin can dirty it again. He's given you a new heart, but yet it can still be tarnished by the decisions that we make. One of them I just wanted to chat about briefly tonight is I think we don't talk enough about lying in our culture. It's easy to talk about some of the really like obvious sins, but, but lying has woven its way into just the fabric of how we exist as, as people. It's, it's so easy from the youngest of ages, like the toddlers to how we see it now to just slip in a little lie when someone comes to you and they ask a question, but it would be easier to just tell the white lie. We avoid the conflict and we just tell the lie. Or if you're a young adult and you're supposed to work 40 hours a week, but it's Friday and you've clocked 36 and you just round up. You've got a homework assignment, and trust me, I have felt the Lord's conviction here, and you just find the Chegg answers, and you oh, some people are feeling it. <laughs> you just find the Chegg answers, and it's like, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Your friends ask you to hang out on a Friday night, but you've had a crazy week, and you're exhausted, and all you need is a night by yourself, but you're not confident enough to tell them what you need, and so you make up some excuse about why you can't come. This lying that we do, it's just... It's woven into the fabric of our society. And every single time we commit a sin like that, it marks our hearts. And it's not just lying. Envy is another one. Envy is this place of comparison and evil. Will you put that heart up, Trevor? It's this place of evil and brokenness that we start to live as if we can compare to every single person and the jealousy just starts to put itself in our hearts. And besides envy, We've got, we've got wrath. 
this anger that we experience as people, whether we're driving or we're experiencing our roommates, and again, it clouds our heart. And not wrath, maybe for you, it's, it's, it's gluttony. Gluttony is a fancy word for you constantly have this desire for more. More food, more stuff, more success, more everything. Gluttony is a part of how we live life. Pride. We walk around constantly wanting people to think about us and look at us and, and, and care about us. When all we're meant to do is reflect back to the Father. Lust, we've already talked about it, but it's another piece of this puzzle that is clouding our hearts. Greed, this desire for money and, and to take others down while we climb the ladder of success. And finally, sloth. This word, again, we don't talk about in our culture, but it's laziness. And I think our generation, Gen Z or whatever you're a part of, is getting covered with this lie that we are constantly slothful, lazy people. And I don't see that, but I see the temptation in the sin. And all of a sudden, we live our lives in a culture, in a world, experiencing temptation in sin. And this looks a lot more like the heart Jeremiah was describing than the heart we're meant to experience with Jesus. Rather than a clean, pure heart, we're living in a heart that it's deceitful and it's wicked. Would you follow that? Would you follow this heart? One that is marred by sin. Some of us, that is our reality. That we have been made clean by Jesus but our heart looks too much like this. And so when we go to follow our heart, our mind, our will, our emotions, the core of who we are is yet again corrupted. And so we're trying to make these life decisions like, should I buy this thing? Should I take this job? Should I move to this place? Should I date this person? But we can't trust who we are and we don't know what to do. And here I want to hit you with a little bit of hope again because it doesn't need to be like this. It is some of our realities, but it doesn't have to be. Jesus will come in and he will cleanse your heart 10,000 times if he needs to. He will forgive every single transgression, past, present, and future. He has paid the price for it. But we don't have to live in this continual cycle of harming our hearts. There is a better way, and Paul describes it for us in Galatians 5. So if you have your Bible, you can flip there again, but I'm going to read you verse 16 and 17. Here Paul is telling us how to live life by the Spirit. And he says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in constant conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want to do. Here, Paul is describing two opposing forces. One that is the flesh. It's what we've talked about a lot tonight. It's the heart. It's our mind, will, and emotions that are apart from Jesus this place where we are struggling with temptation and sin, that's the flesh. Yet he has described for us a different way of living, one that is life by the spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit that will lead you towards righteousness and truth, love, peace, and joy. It's the spirit of God that leads contrary to the things that are of the flesh. And so if we want to trust our hearts, we need to live life by the spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit with you always. I mean, this is a fact we should talk about all the time. God lives in you. The presence of God lives in you. He goes with you everywhere you go. He has never left you. He has never forsaken you. He is right there with you. The Holy Spirit is your guide, your comforter, your aid, your advocate. He is right alongside of you at all times. 
but yet we still have to follow him. We have to walk with him like Paul is describing. Sometimes in my life I get really distracted by all the things of the world and I hope, I hope I stumble into the spirit of God. But yet what I found, and maybe it's similar to your situation, is more often than not we don't stumble into the spirit, we stumble into the flesh. We start living in ways that come naturally to us, the ways that are easiest to us. In following God's spirit, it can be hard, which is thankfully why Paul gives us another step of what to do. Verse 24 and 25, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the spirit, then let us keep in step with the spirit. That word there, crucified, I wrestled with it for the last like three weeks because crucifixion is tough language. Our, our, our world, our, our Christians, our church can sometimes have this desire to cleanse it, to purify it, to make it kid-friendly, right? We can put a cross around our neck or a tattoo on our arm of a cross, and I, I don't dislike any of those things. I have, a cross, I have a cross necklace, and I want a cross tattoo, but when we do those things, we almost pacify the cross because we need to recognize that the cross was a torture instrument used by the Roman Empire, it was the way they put their most, their worst prisoners to death. That they took these trees, these boards, and they pinned people to them. That the way they would die, they would die by suffocating in their own blood because they were too exhausted to push up on their feet that are nailed to the cross anymore. They would simply die. They are so physically tired, they cannot push themselves up on the holes in their hands anymore that they drowned in the own blood that's pooling in their lungs crucifixion. It's what Jesus did for us, yet it's the word Paul uses to describe how we're supposed to overcome our flesh. By the Spirit's power, you are meant to kill the sinful desires within you. If I were to give you softer language, which maybe will help, Paul's telling us we got to say no. We have got to learn to trust the Spirit and say no to sin. We have to learn to walk with the Spirit and say no to temptation, to say no to this world, to say no to the flesh. We have to learn this practice. Remember, we talked about it. It's not just going to come naturally. You have to learn to walk with the Spirit. And it's not just once. It's always. Every single time you come up against that sin or that temptation or that thing, Every single time there is a desire that leads contrary to the way of God, you are meant to crucify that desire with inside of you and walk towards the cross of Jesus. In that word, it's crucifixion. And I think Paul strategically chose it because he wanted us to know how hard this process would be. It's incredibly difficult that you might be journeying on this walk with Jesus, experiencing crucifixion of the things that you desire and the passions you have that are against God. And as you do, there's going to be suffering. And it might feel like torture at times. It's going to be really, really hard. But it will also be worth it because you'll begin to start living by the Spirit. And we want to be able to trust the core of who we are. And the only way to do that to cleanse our hearts and to keep them clean is to trust in Jesus and follow his spirit. Personally, I wanted to just talk to you real, real for the last couple of minutes here because this is a journey I have been on for a couple of years. One I have not completed, but one I'm consistently learning to live by the spirit. 
In one of the places for me that has been a lifelong battle that I have been trying to overcome is that of pride. Pride is a deep struggle of mine as a person. It doesn't shock me because pride has been taking people out since the fall in Genesis 3. Pride has been along every single person's journey. All of your journeys have been marred at some point by pride, but yes, it is a battle of mine. I've struggled with pride and I am trying to crucify that desire and to live in the spirit. But from the youngest of ages, I can remember when I was picking my sports jersey as a soccer player. I didn't pick my favorite number. I picked a number that I thought people would think is cool on me. When I got to high school, I got good grades. And that's not like a slight flex. Here it comes. Like, I got good grades, not because I was smarter, but because I longed so bad for people to see my test scores and to see my grades and to think higher of me. I went to SDSU as an undergrad student, but I'll tell you this, it was the last school on my radar. I only toured SDSU because I was like, if I get into no other place, maybe I'd consider coming here. I did that because I was from Sioux Falls and it's like everybody in their cat, dog, and third cousin comes from Sioux Falls to SDSU. It's like the whole community's like second high school. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do that. I wanted to be different. I wanted people to see my school and be like, wow, that's, that's awesome. That's, I wanted to pick my school based on pride. Praise God, I still ended up here, but pride wanted to take that from me. When I came to college, I wanted to be a lawyer I didn't want to be a lawyer because I was passionate about helping people. No, I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted deep pockets in the prestige of a career that people would envy. That is why I wanted to be a lawyer. Even seven years ago when I sat in your seats and I dreamed for the first time of standing on this stage as the Oasis pastor, I didn't want it because I thought the platform would bring me a greater opportunity to witness to people. No. My first instincts for wanting to stand on this stage is because I thought it would feed my pride and my ego and make me feel better about myself. Praise God, I no longer struggle with that. But my first inklings in almost every single major decision I have made in my life, pride has been right there, wanting to steal from me what the Lord was leading me into. And maybe that resonates with you, but chances are there is something in your life that has plagued you, that you have struggled with, that has corroded and corrupted your heart. In the moments where we've tried to make decisions, the enemy is right there trying to steal the goodness that God has for us. And every single day it has been a battle. And it is one I am continuing to learn and live alongside the spirit of God. So here's the question. Can you follow your heart? The answer Sometimes <laughs> it is as vague as that. It's simple. If, if, if you don't follow Jesus, the answer is no. You can read the Jeremiah text and experience in your own life what it looks like to have a deceitful and sick heart. But if you follow Jesus, the answer is still sometimes. Can you follow your heart even if you're walking with Jesus? Sometimes. And for all of us that are experiencing that, I'd give you these three questions all about how do we check our heart. The first thing that we need to do when we're checking our heart is we need to ask the question, why do I want this? Why do I want this? Why do I want to experience this? Why do I want to get this job? Why do I want to have that promotion? Why do I want to buy that thing? Because that desire, it's coming from somewhere. And if it's coming from the spirit of God, jump into it headlong. 
One of the questions I get so often as a college young adult pastor is wanting to have God lead people into what, the, what their next thing is. People come to me and say, I don't know what job to take. I don't know where to live. I don't know what church to go. I to, and and we, we have this desire to walk with God. And I ask people, well, why do you want that? Why do you want that first thing? Ask yourself that question. The second question is this. Where are those feelings coming from? I don't want you to walk away from tonight thinking your feelings are always wrong. They're not. God has given you those feelings. He has led you in that way. He has given you passions and desires. I'm just asking you, where are they coming from? Because some of them are coming from the spirit of God. And some of them are coming from our flesh. And some we can trust and some we can't. Like just think about anxiety for a second. When you're faced with a major decision and you have anxiety, where does it come from? Does it come from a fear that God won't provide for you? A fear that other people might judge you? A fear of, of all of the sinful things inside of us that are, are wrong? Is, is it coming from that or does it come from the spirit of God when you experience anxiety because he might be pushing you outside your comfort zone so you have to depend on him more? One is healthy, one is not. And the last question is, where will this decision lead me? If you're choosing to follow the spirit of God, it will always lead you into greater reliance, dependence, and glory for his kingdom. Your job place, when you choose to be a doctor or a teacher, the decision is where can I best glorify the father? That's where the spirit's gonna lead you. When you're trying to decide, should I date this person or this person? Should I have this major or that major? Should I be in this friend group or that friend group? Where are they gonna take you? Towards the father or towards your flesh? And as we do this, I pray that we learn to live life by the Spirit. At this point in your life, in my life, we are making an insane amount of huge decisions. I don't think most people outside of our generation understand the weight that many of us feel when we're trying to decide these things. Right? School, major, career, internships, life, family, friends places to live, like the list goes on and on and on of the life-altering decisions we are making right now. And alongside those decisions come so many emotions and so many feelings. And when we're trying to figure it out, I want you to hear this from 1 John 3.20. If our hearts condemn us, if your heart, which is deceitful and wicked, your heart that might be coated with sin, if your heart is not right, if it condemns you, We know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. As we make every single one of these decisions, I pray that you trust that God's got the plan. You can follow his spirit. He's not anxious. He's not unprepared. He knows where he's leading. He knows what he has for you and he has good things ahead of you. If you love him, God will lead you into things that are amazing. He's got the plans. So learn to trust his spirit, to follow his spirit, to live by his spirit. And I'm telling you, it's gonna be okay. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you tonight for the chance to journey through your word. I thank you for Paul's instructions to live by the spirit. I thank you for Jeremiah's prophetic words that tell us about the the broken condition that we experience. And as we're faced with so much in these days, God, trying to figure out who we should follow and where we should go, I pray that we would surrender our own desires to you and live following your spirit. 
pray that we would experience your cleansing, your regeneration, that we would have your new heart and we would live purely and righteously every single day trying to keep that heart pure. And God, I pray that as you take us into what you have for us, that you would give us peace and hope and joy in all circumstances. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.